Our Old Testament reading this morning is from the book of the prophet Jeremiah in the 17th chapter, beginning of verse 5 and continuing through verse 10. I invite you to listen for a word from the Lord as it is there written, Thus saith the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. For he shall be like a shrub in the desert and shall not see when good comes, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness, in a salt land which is not inhabited. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is the Lord. For he shall be like a tree planted by the waters which spreads out its roots by the river and will not fear when heat comes. But its leaf will be green and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. Here ends this reading from God's holy word. Our New Testament reading this morning is from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians in the 15th chapter, beginning at verse 12, continuing through verse 20. Again, I invite you to listen for a word from the Lord as it is there written. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation has been in vain and your faith has been in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified of God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins, then those also who have died in Christ have perished. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. Here ends this reading from God's holy word. Here in the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, we find some of the Apostle Paul's densest yet most important words in his writings to the church at Corinth. They are dense in part on account of the way they were written and in part on account of how they got rendered into our tongue, English, but they are absolutely foundational to an understanding of the apostolic Christian faith that we affirm our belief in each week in our corporate worship. And I must say, I deeply appreciate that we continue to set aside time in our worship service for the corporate confession of faith in the form of the Apostles' Creed. In so doing, we remind ourselves 
and each other of the basic beliefs we have which inform our identity as those who belong to our Savior, Jesus. The profession of faith that we know as the Apostles' Creed was not, though, authored by the Apostles, nor was it even conceived of until three centuries after the death of Jesus. In the centuries before, the church council, which gathered and crafted this sweeping overview of orthodox Christian beliefs, the followers of the Messiah had developed for themselves and used in their company a variety of shorter statements that laid out their understandings of who Jesus was, what he had done, what he was doing, and what he would do in the future. Last week, as we celebrated the installation of this congregation's recently elected officers, they were asked a number of so-called constitutional questions to which they fortunately responded in the affirmative. Many of them dealt with their beliefs and their convictions. As the body of Christ in this place, we together corporately affirmed our belief in some of the basic prepositions about the faith into which all of us have been baptized. This is the same faith of our Christian ancestors to whom Paul was writing now thousands of years ago. This is the very same faith which I exhorted in the sermon of last week as I preached about proclaiming the proclaimer, the one who had come fulfilling the words of Isaiah chapter 61. You may recall that I spent a bit of time unpacking the gospel understanding of the Christian act of evangelism in light of our call to proclaim Jesus. Today, we are getting Paul's take on our proclamation. In his Pharisaic training and experience, Saul would likely have been quite accomplished at Hebrew religious disputation. His knowledge of the law of Moses would have been extensive and have been an important part of the prerequisites that qualified him for service as a defender of the Hebrew faith. He was responsible for ferreting out Jewish heretics, including the sect who followed the crucified Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. Following Paul's most unexpected encounter with the resurrected and glorified Christ, these same gifts and talents for codifying and enforcing the legalistic system of Hebrew life transferred themselves to an evolving understanding of how Jesus himself fit in and the foundational and fundamental changes that he had brought about through his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. All well and good, I suppose, but where does that leave us? Well, I think it leaves us here in this beautifully considered and constructed 15th chapter of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. And it is here that Paul distills for his readers and for those of us who would receive this text so many generations now after the essential tenets of the faith. We believe them or we would not identify as Christians. 
our incoming officers were asked if they accepted the essential tenets of the Reformed faith. Our tradition of Christian understanding that was formulated in the 16th century by folks who sought to whittle down the trappings of the church and reclaim the less institutional and more ancient understandings of what it meant to be the body of Christ. I find it interesting and a bit unsettling, though, that our particular branch of that strain has never quite gotten around to agreeing on just what the essential tenets are. In the service of installation, we refer to our accepted and assembled confessions of the church as they outline, in general, what scripture leads us to believe and what the essential tenets of the faith might be. However, the creeds that we have span about 18 centuries and hundreds of pages of theological writings, some of which directly contradict one another. Well, we also have, in the other volume of our denomination's constitution, the Book of Order, with a section in it that contains uh, the great ends of the church. Helpfully, I think, they guide and they direct us in our corporate mission. But these two are light on core beliefs. Another strain in our tradition, which has recently split off from our own, did from their very outset discern and publish their understanding of what the essential tenets of the faith are as they relate to the following. God's Word, the Trinity and the Incarnation, grace and election, covenant life in the church, faithful stewardship of all life, and living in obedience to God's Word. Other denominations and groups throughout our history have also undertaken to wrestle with the divine self-revelation in Scripture and seeking the guidance of the Holy Spirit have tried their hand at distilling the beliefs that are at the core of our faith. Another word for that which these folks and we too have come to understand as the most basic doctrines and dogma of Christendom is kerygma. It's the Greek word that shows up in this morning's passage a couple of times and is translated in this version as proclamation. Now last week, we spoke of proclamation as the evangelical act of spreading the good news. And that translation remains accurate. This week, another foreign word that also gets translated into English as proclamation is in our text. But there's a subtle nuance of difference between the two uses of this word. Upon his conversion from Judaism, Paul was not stripped of his legalistic, analytic, God-fearing intellect. Instead, he turned it back on the scriptures in the new light of the Spirit's revelation. And in that renewed process, he gained a whole new worldview and achieved some keen insights 
which remain to this day at the heart of our understanding of Jesus and his mission. Such knowledge informs our doctrine of the triune God, of his self-revealing word, of his Messiah, and of his church. The very basics of this understanding is what comprises kerygma, that which we as Christians are compelled to proclaim. As is evidenced by the many pages that our sister denomination has published, that outline their agreed-upon essential tenets, and as is evidenced by our own denomination's inability to even come to that much of a consensus on how to define them, the task of capturing the multifaceted complexity of God's story in relationship with his good creation can get complicated if we let it. It was no different with the Israelites who received from God through Moses ten commandments for ordering their lives in faithful obedience to the one who authored and conferred the law to a people chosen from among all others to receive this special, unmerited gift. And before you know it, before they had made their way out of the wilderness into the land of promise, there are more than 60 times that number of rules and regulations on the books that aim to ensure the people are living out their beliefs in all aspects of their daily lives. Again, during his time as a Pharisee, Paul would have become intimately familiar with these hundreds of regulations. But as he reframed a response of faithful living in light of his encounter with the risen Jesus, he had to go back to square one. From there, he rebuilt an understanding of a faith in God that began with some very core beliefs. As stated, they are his doctrine, his kerygma, that which he would proclaim, and that he is writing his brothers and sisters in Corinth about proclaiming as well. The heart of everything he has come to believe, to trust, to love, and to proclaim. He tells the faithful in Corinth near the very beginning of this letter when he writes, When I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come proclaiming the mystery of God to you in lofty words or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The very minimum of the Christian faith then is a belief in the most high and holy triune God who came to his people incarnate as Messiah and who was murdered and resurrected as a powerful sign of vindication and authority. If this, at the very least, is not what happened, if we have not been led by the Holy Spirit to accept and confess, if, as Karl Barth posited, the people who gather in a small country church on a Sunday morning, again, asking the question, is it true, are met with any other answer than it is true, then 
Then, as Paul writes, we, above all others, are to be most pitied. I believe, I believe with every fiber of my being, that which was authored by God, that it is all true, and that we are not those to be most pitied. I also believe that we are not simply to pity the world that does not yet believe, but rather to proclaim in word and in deed the core message of our sure and only salvation, the simple yet world-changing kerygma, doctrine, statement of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. And for that, we may truly say, thanks be to God and amen.